Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Continuing in the book of Hebrews and studying our superior Savior. Last week we saw that Christ is superior in his person. This week we're going to see that he is superior in his purpose in chapter number 2. All of the songs this morning have, that we have sung, the psalm that was read, point us to the fact of Christ's salvation that he has provided for us. And in that salvation, we find his purpose for coming to this earth. Let's read verses 16, 17, and 18. We'll cover the whole chapter as we have done. But let's read these three verses together. We'll pray and then we'll jump into the preaching this morning. The Bible says, for verily, that is, for truthfully, in truth, he took on, not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or succor them that are tempted. Father, help us this morning as we come to the truth found in this chapter. Lord, in this hour we will find, in this chapter we will see, the reason Christ is superior to the law is because he provides salvation for the souls of mankind. The law could not do that. Religion cannot do that. My own flesh and efforts cannot do that. Only Christ did that. And so we'll see in this chapter the wonderful nature of who Christ is and what he accomplished for us on this earth. I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds, capture every idle thought. And may that which is said, that which is heard, that means listened to and applied, be directed by your Holy Spirit. Bless in all that is said in this place, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, we studied last week, showed us the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his person. You cannot have a faith that is superior to anything if it's not built upon God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We noted last week that Christ is superior in his ministry, he is superior in his majesty, and he is superior in his mastery or control of all things. That was the end of Hebrews chapter 1. If you look with me to verse number 1 of chapter 2, we see the word therefore. Now everything that's going to come after that word therefore is going to teach us a principle that is built on the first principle. If Christ isn't the person he claims to be, if you don't believe him to be the person that he claims to be, if you don't take by faith that Jesus Christ is the living word, the son of God, God in flesh, if you don't believe that, there is no sense understanding the purpose he came to accomplish. Amen. There's no reason to study it. There's no reason to care about it. But we find that the therefore is there for us so that we might build principles upon it. The verses that we read this morning, especially verse number 17, is the proof text for chapter 2. It says, wherefore in all things it behooved him. In other words, it was natural to him. It came upon him. It was for him to accomplish to be made in the likeness to his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, notice, in things pertaining to God. 
Jesus Christ did not take on his incarnation to teach us about our humanity. We know that in all its depravity. He became flesh so that we might see what we should live like. That was his purpose. His purpose in coming was to seek and to save that which is lost. The word therefore, the Bible generally sums up the whole of the preceding argument. And in verse number one, we move from his personhood into his purpose. A person will always accomplish a purpose. You say, I don't know, Pastor. I've met some people that seem like they have no purpose in life. They're accomplishing that purpose very well, by the way. It's very similar to faith. Everybody has faith in something. Everyone accomplishes a purpose. The question from chapter 2 this morning is, are you accomplishing the purpose that God has designed you for as his special creation, humankind? Are you accidentally living through life, or are you purposefully living through life for the glory of God and for the good of your fellow man? A person will accomplish a purpose. Christ provides, I put in your notes there, a superior purpose first for the sons of men. What purpose did Christ bring? What did he prepare? What did he accomplish when, when he came to this earth? Well, he accomplished first a purpose for the sons of men. That's verses 1 through 8. God has a purpose for mankind. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. Why did he make us? Why are you his special creation? Why is it that we believe biblical creation and not Darwinian evolution, secular evolution. Why is it we believe one over the other? It's because in the Bible, we're told that God made man in his own image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, God breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It differentiates us. We are not of the animal kingdom. We are of a special creation, the race of mankind. God has a purpose for us today. What is God's purpose for man? And that is that we might know him. Amen. That we might have a relationship with him. That we might be personally aware of him. God wants to personally know us. He knows us down to the very hairs of our head. However many or few that may be for us this morning. <laughs> In perfection, Adam knew God intimately. I've been thinking about that this morning. I think there are some great Christians that walk the halls of our church that fill the ranks of our membership here. There's some wonderful servants of God and many of us that are trying to grow and become more like our Savior every day. But imagine what it was like to have an intimate, personal, face-to-face -face conversation with the Almighty God like Adam did. Because we don't have that. We see him through a glass darkly now. We see what he would have for us and who he is. But Adam talked to him in his full glory and never shied away from him. He knew him intimately. That's what God has, God has for us as a purpose. From the fall, the relationship was ended by Adam's choice. He purposely ended, or willfully ended, that relationship. But may I say to you, God's purpose for mankind has never changed. He still wants to know us personally. That's what the first eight verses here of Hebrews chapter 2 tell us. Christ, in coming as a person, accomplished perfectly, in a more superior way than the law ever could, the restoration of that relationship 
to a walk with God, an intimacy with God Almighty. God's purposes never change. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him personally. By the way, the conditions to entering that relationship also have never changed. You cannot come into a relationship with God in imperfection. You must come only by the perfection of Jesus Christ. It is only because he came and because he lived and because he died and because he rose again that you and I have the ability to trust him and then enter into the presence of Almighty God. God's purpose, Christ's purpose in coming, was to provide a way back into that perfection so that each of us could have a relationship with God. The writer in these first eight verses of Hebrews is stressing God's purpose for the sons of men. And he does so by starting and showing us that God's purpose for the sons of men is letter A, to accept Christ's salvation. Read with me verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. What have we heard? Well, we've heard about who Jesus Christ is in this particular writing. But he's writing to the Hebrews. He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to those who are either in Judaism or coming out of Judaism. And he's saying to them, look, we need to pay attention. We need to give earnest heed to the things which we've heard. Lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, that means rock solid, unmovable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? So if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his son. He asks a question here, but within the question, he's asking, will you accept God's plan of salvation? Will you accept Christ's provision of salvation? Christ coming to this earth, his purpose for his incarnation was so that he might redeem mankind back to himself. In accepting Christ's salvation, we find in verses 1 and 2, an earnest plea is made. We ought to give the more earnest heed, lest at any time they should slip. The words earnest heed, or the concept of earnest heed, means pay careful attention. By the way, do you know what happens when you pay careful attention to something? You, when you put all of your energy and all of your in, uh, all of your energy, all of your uh, uh, power and thinking into paying attention to something, you know what happens to you? You get tired. Now, I remember as a kid, often when I knew my grandparents were coming, or when I knew someone was traveling to our house. As a young child, I would sit at the window, or I would sit outside, or I would sit waiting for them to come. And you know what happens eventually? You get bored. Eventually you say, well, you know, I'm going to inside. They'll get here whether I'm watching for them or not. Well, that's the concept of the earnest heed. We have a lot of folks that come over to our house, and our boys will go to the front door. They'll go to the front window, and they'll watch. We have a driveway alarm, and when the driveway alarm goes off, we know when somebody's driving up our driveway. Yet they will still look out that window. But there is a certain point where the earnest heeding goes away. What he's saying here is, look, you have heard from the law, you Jewish Christians, how that there would be a Messiah that comes. There were sacrifices that were made, but a more perfect sacrifice has come. You have heard of that, and now that he has come, you cannot let these things slip. 
The word slip means to let something just float past you. Boy, that is a truth in the Christian world today, isn't it? How many kids, don't raise your hand, but how many of us as adults or maybe young people in here have grown up or grew up in Christian homes? And we went to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Wednesday. We went to the Bible schools. We went to all of the teaching. And yet, we sit here even perhaps this morning in our trespasses and sins. That's the concept that the writer is saying. You've been given the truth. Do not let it just float by you and miss it. It's an earnest plea to accept Christ as your Savior. Often, that is the most dangerous thing for young people, parents, is that you will inculcate them. You will put them within the safe haven of church and school and Christianity, and they will become numb to it. They'll just let it slip right by. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Christ came on purpose, with a purpose, and we as the sons of men need to understand that purpose. It begins with understanding through earnest heeding, paying attention to the salvation that he has provided to us. He says, secondly, the accepting of Christ's salvation doesn't just come with an earnest plea. In verses 3 and 4, it has an escape plan. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What will you tell God someday, having heard and heard and heard and heard the gospel message taught to you over and over and over again? When you say to God, but I just missed it, could I have one more chance? He will say no. These Jews had been given everything in the law of Moses. They thought they knew everything. They thought they were sure of what they were sure of. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, look, you have to pay attention to the details. There is only one way into a relationship with God, and that is through the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ Amen. himself. To neglect a remedy is a serious matter. It's as serious in the mind of God as to deliberately reject it. So to passively sit in church and to listen and let it slip, and to listen and let it slip, over and over again is not something that God will wink at. He'll not just say, you know what? You were in a good church. You were raised in a good family. That doesn't matter to God. Right. He wants a personal relationship with you. In Christ's advent, Christ's incarnation, Christ's coming in the flesh was with the intention that the sons of men would accept the salvation he provides. Verses 1 through 4 teach us. If Israel was going to be held accountable for neglecting what was an imperfect and incomplete law, how can we hope to escape, the writer says, if we neglect the full light of day that has been brought to earth in the Son of, Je Son of God, Jesus Christ? Now, physically, if you have been given instruction from the doctor to take a medication and you don't take it, you are foolish. About a year, year and a half ago, the doctor told me, I have high blood pressure. I can't figure out why I have high blood pressure, but he said you have high blood pressure. No amount for the year and a half, two years before of changing my diet and exercising more. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, I tried to exercise, but no amount of changing that helped me avoid taking my little pill that I take every month. You know how small that little blood pressure pill is? I mean, it, it's like this big. And when they first prescribed it, the doctor said, well, you know, your blood pressure is a little high. It runs in your family. 
Uh, it's hereditary generally. Uh, you, you should probably be taking these. But my doctor didn't say emphatically, Kyle, take these. And so he prescribed them, and I got them, and they sat in my cabinet for a good long time until one day I was at the house, and I was saying to Jessica, man, I have a splitting headache, and I've had a headache now for low these three weeks. I mean, it had gone on for almost a month. And she said, have you been taking your blood pressure medicine? <coughs> no, I have not. Well, you can't complain about a headache if you're not going to listen to what Joel told you to do. And so I started taking the medication. As foolish as that was for me to neglect, the writer here is saying it's equally foolish for you and I to neglect the clear prescription of how to live a healthy and holy life through the salvation provided in Jesus Christ. If you neglect that, I don't care what you think of this church. I don't care what you think of this pastor. I don't care what you think of your parents. If you neglect the salvation that is so greatly provided to you, you will not enter into heaven's glory. We cannot let them slip. We cannot neglect them. The question that the writer asked, and by the way, verses 1 through 4 is one sentence in an, in an assumptive form of a question. He is assuming a common response. Again, the letter was written to Jewish Christians who were fighting over how much the law would impact them, how much it needed to be a part of them. And the writer is saying to them, Christ is superior to all of the old law. He's the fulfillment of it. And so in the writing of it, he's writing to believers. Be clear. So he's asking an, a, question, a question that has an assumed answer. The assumption is that we would all say, yes, I will accept it. Yes, I will escape hell and enter into heaven. Yes, I will receive the salvation given to me. But the question falls personally to us, even though it is assumed we give the right answer. What have you done with Jesus Christ? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Neglecting salvation leads to death. God's escape plan is that we would accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. If he came in his person, he came for a purpose. In other words, what he did in his person was to accomplish a purpose that he and his Father and the Spirit had agreed to before the worlds began. We'll see when we get to chapter 3 that it provides for him because of that a position. But I can't preach all of Hebrews on one Sunday morning, so I must contain myself. Moving into verses 5 through 9, we find it's not just accepting Christ's salvation. That's not just his only purpose that he has for the sons of men. But in coming incarnate, it is that we would appreciate Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 5. For under the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Now, what world is he talking about? Well, the perfect state once again. Eternal glory, heaven. Verse 6, but one in a certain place, the one in a certain place is King David, in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, testifieth, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, thou didst set <clears throat> him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, 
For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now let's pause for a second and look at this. In these verses, we're going to see in just a moment, they do apply to Jesus Christ, but they apply to Jesus Christ when they're reiterated beginning in verse 9. The application here, be very, very clear in understanding the Bible. The application here, the application of the psalmist in Psalm 8 is this is a message to mankind. In other words, mankind is made a little lower than the angels, verse 7. Mankind is crowned with glory and honor. Mankind was set over the works of God's hand. Mankind, God has put all things in subjection under mankind's feet. These were all promises given to Adam that Adam forfeited in the garden. And Christ coming to earth, his purpose in coming to earth was to restore for us our rightful place as the sons of men or the creation of God in the right order. So we find verses for our deliverance. What is man that thou art mindful of him? You know, if you want to be truly humble, you should read or ask yourself that question at least, at a bare minimum, once a week, perhaps every day. Maybe instead of saying, what is man, you can say, what am I that thou art mindful of me? What is man that thou art mindful of him? What we find in this is that Christ in coming, leaving his throne in glory, entering his humanity, coming into this world, he sacrificed everything for us. And it begs the question, why? Why for me, God? What makes me so special? What did I do to earn this? And the answer, by the way, is nothing. That's the beauty of grace. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. We are to appreciate Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. He did not have to leave his throne. But we read in verse 17, it became him to be made like unto his brethren. What is man that thou art mindful of him? We are to appreciate Christ's sacrifice, the writer is saying, because man is not just delivered, but we have, secondly, I put there in your notes, a destiny. Verses 7 and 8 is the destiny of mankind. It's the design that God has for us. Thou madest him lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. The writer is directly quoting King David from Psalm 8. The psalmist, and it seems the angelic order, wonders at the fact that of man's ultimate destiny and God's designed purpose. Free will man, who chose to depart from God, is still destined to rule with God. Ask yourself the question, why? That's what we're speaking to here in chapter 2. It's all about God's purpose for us. God's purpose in Christ's coming is so that the sons of men, you and I, daughters and sons of Adam, those of his lineage, we can accept his salvation, but in accepting his salvation, we can appreciate all that that sacrifice brought with it. He's writing to tell us all of those things that were true are true, but they are only true through Christ because he accomplished his purpose. The answer to why 
God would design and destine man to rule with him is because simply he purposed it so. That is, by the way, the damnable heresy of evolutionary thinking. And it creeps into every part of our being. In every way of our thinking, because we are bombarded by the world, if we are nothing but higher elevated animals, then there's no special creation to us. These verses speak directly against that. He never prepared this for the angels, which are a specific created race, different than ours, presently higher and someday lower than what we will become in Christ. What we will be in our eternal glory. <clears throat> they are below us then. We are below them now. That tells us that we are a special being. And there is something God has determined for us as his special being. How is he going to do that? And the answer is found at the end of verse number 8. It is only through Jesus Christ. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That is the race of man. For in that he, that is God, put all in subjection under him, the race of man. He, God, left nothing that is not put under him, the race of man. But now we see not yet all things put under who? Man, him. We appreciate Christ's sacrifice because in coming and dying for our sins, he didn't just give us deliverance now. He helps us to be able to embrace and live our destiny that he's designed us for. Sometimes we look at salvation as only the escape plan. Woo! It's my get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't have to go to hell. I think one preacher one time said, it's your fire insurance card. That is not what salvation is. Yes, it saves us from hell, but it saves us to a life of destined glory that God has for us. Boy, that begs the question, what are you doing with the salvation that you have? Well, I'm just riding out my time here. You are failing him miserably. You're failing in your own joy. The problem for most of us is that we don't live for God 100%. We don't live for Jesus Christ. We don't sell out. We don't surrender. We don't submit. We don't do all the things that we need to. And so we get perplexed, and we no longer appreciate the Christian life. We don't appreciate what Christ did for us. We begin to loathe it and ask the question, why are we doing this at all? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, this is our destiny in Christ. And some of us say, well, that'll be great someday in heaven. No, no, live it today. You're delivered now Amen. from the power of sin. We're going to read in just a few verses that Satan himself is destroyed because Christ has come. Listen, as the sons of men, that's a great rejoicing in our part. It ought to be a joy for us. God's purpose for me, his purpose for you, is wrapped up in the superiority of Christ. Not only in his person from chapter 1, but here in his purpose. As a person, he came to accomplish something. He did. Jesus makes salvation possible, and that salvation was purpose-built for the sons of men. He did not die for the angelic realm. There is no salvation for them. It is only for us. That's why the writer of Hebrews begins in such a fashion. This is something that the angels don't understand. They look upon the majesty and the glory of God from chapter 1 in Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. Which, by the way, is what helps elevate who we are. The latter half of Hebrews 2 focuses on Christ's purpose as the Son of Man. Look in verse number 9. But 
talked about mankind being a little lower than the angels in verse number 7. Notice what he says in verse number 9. Who was made a little lower than the angels? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Those are the same words that are used of mankind, our race, in verse number 7. That he, by the grace of God, should take death for every man. There is the purpose for why Jesus Christ became flesh. Right there. Having established the why in his coming for the sons of men, in verses 1 through 8, the writer of Hebrews moves on to teach us why Christ had to come as the son of man, number 2. Boy, there was a great accomplishing of purpose for the sons of men, but there was also an accomplishing of a purpose in him as the son of man. The deity of Christ is not bothered by the humanity of Christ. Now, philosophers, really intelligent Bible teachers the world over, will wax eloquent saying that you cannot be both divine and mortal, for they are mutually exclusive, and they are right. Except for the person of Jesus Christ. I would preach and preach very clearly that you cannot please your flesh and the spirit. Whatever moves the flesh will not move the spirit. Whatever moves the spirit will not move the flesh. That is an absolute. That is a truism. And so the divine and the mortal cannot be wrapped up in one, except when it comes to Jesus Christ. It is wrapped up in one. The deity and the humanity of Christ are not in conflict. They are in concert with each other. Luke chapter 1, if you want, you can write that next to verse number 9. But it says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, and set the context for us, Gabriel the angel is make, or delivering a message to Mary about the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. You found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Exactly what Noah found way back in Genesis chapter number 6. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. He will be the Son of God. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He will also be a man. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary asks the question that all of us would ask. How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. Now, there's little ears in here. Simply to say, most of us that are married understand where babies come from. The birds and the bees, the X's and the O's. And you can explain it to your kids when you get home. Parents, you're welcome. Simply put, Mary's asking the question that all of us would ask. I've never engaged in marital relations. How can this be? How can there be a baby when there hasn't been a father? And the angel explains to her who the father would be. It explains to us how there is the deity and the humanity of Christ wrapped perfectly. Not 50% God and 50% man, but 100% God and 100% man in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, and he answers her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. He will have both the nature of God and the nature of man in its fullness. 
In verses 9 and 10, we read Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Verse 10, there in Hebrews chapter 2, for it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. So we find letter A in our notes, the empathetic suffering of Christ. Now, what is the difference between empathy and sympathy? I have two teenage guys sitting over here this morning, so you two teenage guys don't do it either. One of them kind of whispered to the other the spelling. <laughs> yes, that is correct. The difference between empathy and sympathy is the spelling, right? But what is the difference between empathy and sympathy? As a pastor, I can demonstrate sympathy to a family who loses a child. I can demonstrate sympathy to someone in our church. That means sorrow in sharing. That's what sympathy means. It means I come alongside and I grieve with those that grieve. I mourn with those that mourn. For those that have lost a spouse, those who have lost a parent, those who have gone through a tragic and difficult divorce, when those who have suffered loss or suffered setbacks in this world, as a pastor, in those areas that I just named, I can come and I might put my arm around them, or Jessica might put her arm around them if it's a woman, and say, we sympathize with you. But that cannot be empathy, for we, as a husband and wife, have not experienced any of those things. The difference between empathy and sympathy is experience. Some of you in this room have suffered great tragedy and loss. You have experienced the loss of a child. You have experienced the loss of a parent. You have experienced the loss of a spouse. And while as a pastor, I do everything I can within the Bible context to come along and to sympathize, to have godly sorrow with you, to mourn with you, I've not walked that road. There are some of you in here, when our family begins to go through some of the difficulties that you've had to experience, you actually will be better at empathizing with us because you've walked that road. Amen. You see, when we put empathy into that terminology, we understand what chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 are teaching us. They are teaching us that Christ, as the Son of Man, his purpose was accomplished and then he had to come, he had to live, he had to experience, and he ultimately had to die and be resurrected the third day so that he could be an empathetic sufferer with us. The Bible says he was in all points tempted like that as we are, yet without sin. Here's what that means. When Jesus was there at the, at the uh, trial before his crucifixion, and they were beating upon him, and they were smacking him and mocking him, and when they were crowning him with a crown of thorns, when they were whipping and beating him, and when they told him to carry his cross, in those moments, he was human. There was the temptation within him. His human blood boiled, and he wanted to respond. But his divine nature was what he yielded to, what controlled him, and he said no. He was tempted in every depressive, despondent, despairing state that you and I will ever experience. And so we find, by the way, that's why verse 18, as we'll see at the end, is so great and why he puts it where he puts it. It says, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. That means tried or put through the trials of this life. The 
The idea behind this concept given to us in verses 9 and 10 of an empathetic suffering is what Christ had to accomplish. Jesus Christ could not mystically appear at the cross of Calvary, hop up on it, die, bury, and be raised again the third day and say, I know what pain you suffer. He had to live. He had to walk this earth. Many theologians, we never hear of Joseph, his earthly father, his what I call his surrogate father, his stepfather of this earth. We don't know where he is. Many theologians believe he died before Jesus Christ actually made it to Calvary. That means that there would have been grief and mourning. He would have understood loss. He would have understood joy and excitement. He would have understood dif the differences between uh, sibling rivalries and sibling relationships. And yet every way Jesus didn't just navigate those, he walked through those perfectly. In his divine nature. Why? So that he could be an empathetic sufferer. I put in your notes, this is the main purpose for Christ's incarnation. He had to be one like us so that he could die for us. By the way, it goes back to the first point in letter B where we appreciate Christ's sacrifice. He was made flesh like us. brings us to our final point this morning, and that is verses 11 through 18. Christ's purpose as the Son of Man was to be an empathetic sufferer, but it was also to give us endless supply. The salvation that Jesus Christ gives us is not just good for today. It's good for every day. It's, coming, it's good for that coming eternal day as well. It literally is a salvation, like the prophet Isaiah said, that has a well to it. And we can draw from the well of that salvation with joy, continual joy for our soul. We can come back to the fact that we are saved, and we have a Savior who lived like us and suffered like us. We can come back to that salvation time after time after time. Why? Because he came as the Son of Man. Thus, he can give us an endless supply. There are no limits to what salvation can do in the life of one who receives Christ. His purpose was to bring the life of God back to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Christ literally partners with us in our salvation so that we might succeed. Don't believe me? In verse 11 and 12, he calls us brethren. Literally, he says, hey, these are my, bro these are my brothers. In verse number 13, at the middle of it, I lost my place there. Verse number 13 says, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. He calls us his children. His purpose in accomplishing salvation's plan is so that we might be joint heirs with him. It's again why, from verse 3, this is so great a salvation that we have. What does the endless supply do for us? I put three things in your notes underneath this that we need to understand before we close our thoughts today. First thing he does in supplying us an endless joy of salvation is that salvation readies us. Christ readies us for this life. Look, look in verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one or of the same spirit, the same, they were, there's unity. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now let me pause for a second. The phrase sanctifieth, or the word sanctifieth, has the idea of perpetual 
and continual purification for us. In other words, your actions, everything you do in salvation can be pure, can be right, and can be righteous because of Jesus Christ, because of the salvation he gives you. He says here, he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. What is the unifier? The spirit of God that flows or comes from Christ. The holiness that we cannot have before salvation in any act that we do, if now after salvation done in Christ and for Christ, will be both sanctified and useful to Almighty God. That is an amazing truth. Salvation readies us for life. It readies us for this endless supply given to us because Christ came in the flesh. But it also helps our attitudes. It's not just our actions. In verses 12 and 13, we find Jesus singing. I wrote that in the margin of my Bible. I put a bracket around verses 12 and 13. This is Jesus singing. Stop singing it. I don't know. My phone pops. What does Jesus sing? You ever wonder that? Well, when it comes to him being in the church, here's the message he sings. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Stop for a moment and get that picture. Jesus Christ literally this morning was in our midst singing with us. Amen. I thought the worship started when you got up to preach. The worship starts the moment you walk in these doors and sit down and get serious about coming into his presence. And that's why we try as best we can to make sure that worship in this place is worship in this place. Not entertainment. Not as best we can free from distraction. Because when we come into this place, this isn't the only place you can worship God. But this is where Jesus comes together in the midst of his church and is singing. And what does he sing about? Praise to his God. It all speaks to attitude, by the way. If you're here this morning, I did not watch you on purpose this morning. I sat in my chair and I read the office screen because I didn't want somebody to say, he was watching me sing. I was not watching you sing. But if you come into church on a Sunday morning and it's time to sing and I get it if you don't know the song or if you're still learning a new song or if it's new to you, I understand that. But if your attitude in singing is, oh, how I love to Jesus, do you really demonstrate that you love Jesus? Now, imagine here in verse number 12 when Jesus is singing in the midst of his brethren and the church and he's singing the praise of his father. I doubt that Jesus is singing. How glorious is God. I made that song up. I copied it. <laughs> Do you think that's how he sings? Now, I don't want you to come tonight or the next service and get up there and go, Oh, how I love Jesus. I don't need you to sing that way. <laughs> because you're just doing it for the show of me. But if you read verse 13, he says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. What he sings about when he comes into worship before God in the midst of the church, he praises God and he puts his trust in God. Friends, that is our actions in sanctifying and our attitudes in singing. That's what God wants from us. And that's what he readies us for because he came in his flesh. He can sing. Sings to us, sings for us, and yes, I would argue, sings through us. 
The endless supply readies us, but number two, I put there in your notes, the endless supply rescues us. It would be a great time, and we don't have time this morning, to go and consider Ruth and Boaz. And Boaz's redemption as a kinsman redeemer of Ruth. He was the next nearest kinsman redeemer, and he, in that wonderful display in the Old Testament, could take off his sandal and throw it down, marking that he was claiming Ruth as his own. That he was willing to redeem her at the full purchase price. That's who Christ is for us. That is what he said or what he's talking about when he talks about verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He is our kinsman redeemer, in other words. That through death, he, Jesus Christ, might destroy him, that is the devil, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He rescues us by destroying Satan and delivering the saints in verses 14 and 15. How wonderful it is to know that Satan's days of ruling this earth are done. Amen. Why? Because Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He came as the Son of Man. That was his purpose in coming. Because he lived sinlessly, he died victor or died perfectly and rose victoriously. He can be the second Adam that the first Adam forfeited. He can fulfill that position. He readies us, he rescues us. But third, I put in your notes, there are texts that we read to open this morning. He relieves us. We could say he reconciles us, but that is something he does in heaven. The reconciliation process is what goes on in an agreement and discussion in heaven. That's a message for another day. It's a whole message in itself. Probably the next time we have communion, that's the idea that God's put on my heart. We'll preach on that. The idea of his reconciling ministry in heaven. For now, here's what this means for us. Christ's purpose in coming as the Son of Man provides for us an endless supply of relief. Amen. Wherefore, or because of all this stuff, wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, verse 17, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He can offer for us his own blood on the mercy seat of heaven. Christ suffered like us in the areas of physical weakness. Spiritual testing and emotional strain. Why? So that he can help shoulder our weaknesses. Verse 18, for in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or succor them that are tempted. That is a word that we don't use often unless we're talking about somebody that's been taking advantage of us. Man, he suffered me. Well, that is not what it means. We've changed the use of the word through the years. The word succor or succor here has the idea in the Old English to run at the instant you cry for help. That's what it means in its very original language. In other words, every mama in here understands what that means. Well, off they go to the room to pick up baby, to pat baby's bottom, to make sure they're okay. That is the idea of succoring or succoring. To pick us up, to aid us, and to nurse us on, or carry us on to what we need to be. Because he came in the flesh, he can do that for every one of us. Amen. Every one of God's kids. Because he came in, the in his person, he accomplished his purpose. 
In both of these, it makes Christ superior to the law or to any other religious practice you could ever contrive. In closing this morning, Christ is superior to any other being, the writer has now told us, because he accomplished his purpose in becoming flesh and in dying perfectly in that flesh so that man might be redeemed. We could say it this way. His purpose as the Son of Man was to live sinlessly and to become the merciful and faithful high priest for the sons of men. In Hebrews chapter 2. He accomplished his purpose. Which begs the question for us this morning. Have we accepted his, his gift of salvation? And if we have accepted the gift of salvation, do we appreciate it day by day? Hebrews chapter 2 is not written just as a doctrinal chapter. There's a lot of doctrine in it. It's written as a practical chapter. What do you do because Christ did what he did? How do you live because of the way he came and lived? In accomplishing his purpose, we have a purpose to accomplish as well. Father, help us as we close our